Coming up on Tech Nation, the former professional glassblower who co-founded Square, that little white gadget that plugs into a vendor's smartphone and lets them process your credit card. He's here today with the Innovation Stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. Then on Biotech Nation, what Australia and New Zealand mean to global biotech. From clinical trials for drugs you may be taking right now to innovative product ideas and more, I'll speak with Chris Nave from Brandon Capital. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies. I asked him, in this information age, we now have big data. We've got big data analytics. Do we also have big lies? Well, I guess we do. Um, people are getting away with bigger and bigger lies, it seems. And there, I think what I'm mostly interested in is that there's more and more false information than ever before. That um, misinformation and pseudoscience seem to be proliferating like there's no tomorrow. And I think the problem with that is that misinformation is promiscuous. It just ends up in all different kinds of places. You don't know where it's been. You don't know where it's going. Don't or, touch it. <laughs> exactly. And you don't know who it's going to be with next. Exactly. You know, I, I wrote this book as a very practical guide. There's not any theory in there, nothing about what the brain's doing when this goes on. It's just these are the steps to follow if you're above the age of 12 or so. And you want to know how to make sense out of things. It's it's what we would classically call critical thinking uh, that most of us haven't been trained to do. Uh, lawyers, scientists, journalists are trained to do it. But the rest of us are often left at the mercy of people who are really good at spinning a story or taking advantage of us. Elementary school arithmetic. Add up all the percentages on the pie chart. They're supposed to equal 100. Fox News got it wrong in your example. Yeah, they published this pie chart of who was supporting whom in uh, the uh, Romney presidential election. And you look at the numbers, and they add up to way more than 100%. Now, I can imagine how that happened. It might be they asked people in a poll, who do you support? And people were allowed to give more than one name. But then don't make a pie chart. <laughs> There's a problem with averages, isn't there? An average is a distortion of reality because you're taking a whole bunch of data points, anywhere from a few to dozens to millions, and you're trying to summarize them with a single number, right? It, you know, that can be useful, but it can also lead to a distortion. I think people need to know the next time you see an average, ask yourself, um, is it reasonable to take an average of this thing? Or could it be that we're combining apples and oranges or testicles and ovaries in this case, right? I mean, yes, on average, humans have one testicle, but that's that's not really a well-formed way to summarize the human race. In a real sense, even with the simple statistics, one of the things you're asking is, first of all, look at the data. What is the data that they're looking at? And what kinds of things about that data are important to see? 
Exactly. And I, I mean, there, there are some fundamental things you can ask, such as, are we comparing apples and oranges? Is it a, a fair comparison? Especially when we're dealing with averages. Just to take another example, suppose you're a salesperson uh, or you know, you're a real estate agent or you're, um, you're a stockbroker and you hear that there's a room over here. And in that room, the average uh, wealth of people in the room is $5 billion each. Now you're thinking, oh, I got to get in there. But what if the room has <laughs> peeps to sell things to? Right. What if the room has Warren Buffett and 19 homeless people? Not all homeless people are poor, of course. Again, don't want to make any assumptions or jump to conclusions. But let's say that this particular group of 19 homeless people have a net worth of zero, and you got Warren Buffett, who knows what his net worth is. The average wealth in that room is very high, but. I'm not sure that's a meaningful summary. You're comparing two different groups. It'd be like telling me the average height of a room full of NBA players and five-year-olds. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. A neuroscientist, musician, and record producer, you might also remember him from one of his earlier books, including This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Jim McKelvey, the serial entrepreneur who co-founded Square and the author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Then on Biotech Nation, Chris Nave, the CEO and founder of Brandon Capital. He talks about the bio-entrepreneurial landscape of Australia and New Zealand. And yes, the highly poisonous desert taipan snake and the startup they invested in. And now, Jim McKelvey. Well, Jim, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much. I was just a few pages into your book when you wrote something that I say all the time. I mean, in my early career, I worked at NASA, and I've always been grateful for that experience because at NASA, we never built anything that was built before. I mean, if it was done before, we didn't do it at NASA. And you write, building an innovation stack all begins by choosing to solve a problem that nobody has solved before. Yes, it's the start of a different path and a path that you don't have a map to and a path that is terrifying, <laughs> but it's wonderful. And those of us who don't get the chance to walk on those paths, I just wanted to tell the stories and then invite more people to walk those paths with us. Because like if you worked at NASA and, and you notice I have NASA analogies all through the book. I did be notice. <laughs> because like I talk about Tang and how it used to turn. Remember Tang? And if you're really hardcore, you would just eat the Tang. You wouldn't dilute it. You would just scoop wow. it out of the bag or something. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many NASA analogies because, of course, I was a little boy when we walked on the moon. And that had such an impact on my life. Like everybody wanted to be a scientist. Everyone wanted to be an engineer, uh, explore. It was a magical moment. 
And you write, building an innovation stack all begins by choosing to solve a problem that no one has solved before. What What is building an innovation stack? What is that? So an innovation stack is a term I coined for this thing. And I didn't know what the thing was. And I spent three years looking for the thing. And what happened at Square uh, was we got attacked by Amazon after we were a four-year-old company. And Amazon always wins. I could never find another example of Amazon running their playbook, which is undercut your price by 30%, add the Amazon brand, add anything else they had that you didn't have, and then just wiping you out of the market. And that always works for Amazon. And for some reason, it didn't work when they did it to Square. And so we survived a direct attack by probably the most scary company in the world. And I couldn't figure out why. And so it set me, because I am a scientist, because I'm a guy who just has to answer these questions, on a three-year quest to find a pattern. And I couldn't find it, and I couldn't find it. And then about two years in, I stumbled onto it. And it was this thing that is rare, but it is repeatable. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to write a book. Like, I just had to write a book. And writing a book is painful, (laughs) <laughs> and it's yeah. it's horrible <laughs> and and I apologize because it's it's even a business book and when I thought oh my god do I want to put another sort of dead body on the pile of business books they're so boring they're so self-important and horrible so so I was like I'm not writing a business book so I I actually wrote a graphic novel the first draft of the book was just like cartoons but I just had to tell the story because innovation at least the way I discuss it is fundamentally different. And it's this weird thing where you don't get to copy what somebody else has done. You have to solve a new set of problems. And it's always problems, plural. It's not just, oh, we came up with this one thing and it worked. No, it's like, we came up with this one thing and that worked, but then that caused all these other problems. And then, so, like, you add an ounce of fuel to a rocket. Now, all of a sudden, you have to redesign the rocket because the rocket was designed to not handle that much fuel. It's just a different way of thinking and, and a way that we don't normally discuss. Now, you know, in Silicon Valley and the whole rest of the technical world, we do have stories of little startups getting killed by tech giants or getting bought by tech giants or being attacked by tech giants so that they can buy them for cheap or, or for a gabillion dollars for nobody seems to know the reason. You write, entrepreneurial companies get attacked. It's not just a successful company. It's not just an interesting company. You got attacked. We got attacked. So I saw that pattern with all the companies that I studied, and which was weird because there was no reason to attack these companies uh, if you consider who the attackers were. And so uh, what I did was I did a study basically throughout history of companies that had followed this pattern. And what I noticed was that they were expanding markets. In other words, they weren't taking market share from the incumbent companies. They were just making the market bigger. You know, Ikea expanded the market for new furniture. Like when I was in school, you didn't have new furniture. You, you know, got milk crates and two-by-fours and, like, you inherited furniture. Uh, but you, you would never buy new. These days you go into a college dorm and it's all new Ikea furniture. They expanded the market of furniture. But yet they were viciously attacked by other furniture companies. And Square was pretty viciously attacked, um, even though we were just expanding the market for credit card acceptance. And it's this interesting pattern because if you're starting a new market 
that's adjacent to a similar-looking market, the incumbents in that similar-looking market uh, get pretty riled up. Wait a minute. Either we don't want that market to expand or we want that market share or we just don't want to be irritated at this point. Yeah. I don't know their motivations because I've never been on the attacking end, but they want you dead. They want you gone or they want you to be, you know, a subsidiary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Any way they want it, but not what you are today. They do not want you to independently expand the market. There seems to be this allergic reaction to market expansion, even for companies who are not in the business of including more people. So, uh, you know, look at airlines. Uh, The airline industry is probably the most ruthlessly competitive industry in the history of business. And the incumbent airlines did everything they could to kill Southwest when it was a startup. As a matter of fact, I had this interview with Herb Kelleher, and he told me how just insanely vicious the attacks were. They would And bl- who is Herb Kelleher? Herb Kelleher is a legend. He was the co-founder and major CEO of Southwest Airlines. And he was, and I say was because unfortunately Herb died last year, but a major, major force in in the world of business. And not not just aviation, but he was just a force of nature. Chain smoking, belly laughing joking, hilarious, fun, great guy. I miss him dearly. I, I, I so wish I'd been able to get the book finished while Herb was alive, but I just write so slowly. <laughs> I guess you draw pictures. More I draw pictures. I, <laughs> I, I, I agonize over these words, uh, you know, because I write a sentence and then that's just a placeholder. And then I have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until it's something that's readable and, and hopefully fun. Now, before we get to what Square did... Let's talk about like 15 things that Southwest did that now we take as kind of air. I mean, this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I can't remember when Southwest started. What was so different then than the airlines of the day? Oh, Southwest did over a dozen things differently. So first of all, they were just trying to start a little regional airline, and they were prevented from doing a lot of the things that the other airlines were 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 doing at the time because the other airlines were uh basically had these laws in place that prevented Southwest from doing whatever they wanted so they were legislatively restricted from even flying as a matter of fact Herb Kelleher the founder of Southwest wasn't an airline guy he was an attorney and he fought the other airlines that were trying to keep Southwest out of the sky. But what really happened that sort of kicked everything off for Southwest, they, 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 they got through the courts, they got into the air, and then they ran into financial troubles, and they had to sell one of their four planes. So they had four planes, they went down to three planes, and they tried to maintain their schedule, a four-plane schedule with only three planes. And they realized that they could do it if they could somehow turn around a plane in 10 minutes or less. Now, a normal turn time for a plane that gets into the gate and gets cleaned and fueled and serviced and passages off and passage on, all that stuff takes about 45 minutes at the time. But Herb, uh, Herb and the team at Southwest decided that they could turn their planes in 10 minutes. And so they rethought everything about turning a plane around. And that's how do you clean the plane? Who cleans the plane? So in, in Southwest case, it was the pilots. They would go diving for diapers in the, you know, those, (laughs) those seat back pockets. Like you don't know what the hell's in there, but like the pilots would clean the planes and the ground crew, you know, they kept going through ground crews, 
because the baggage handlers were just not used to this level of performance. But it is possible. And so they changed so many things about the way... No assigned seats. No assigned seats. One class of service, so they don't have to sort you. Um, No food. uh, No food, so they don't have to waste that space and uh, onload food and offload trash and um, uh, plastic boarding cards so they can reuse them. And uh, they don't need computers. You don't need some fancy printout because, remember, this was before – this was in the 70s. This was before computers became uh, prevalent in travel. Um, They they flew differently, so they – once they got their planes turned quickly – they realized that flying point to point was uh, more efficient than flying through hubs. So they completely discarded the hub and spoke system, which all the major carriers used, uh, and they went point to point. Um, which in San Francisco meant instead of going from San Francisco to LAX, Los Angeles International, you would go from, say, Oakland to Ontario. Yeah, yeah. If you want, if cheaper, you want it, easier, cheaper, easier, uh, lower landing fees and less congestion, which means that Southwest soon had the best on-time performance in the world of aviation, and um, they did so many things differently, and including the way they they trained everybody. So, the, like, you didn't work at Southwest unless you were bought into this mission. If, if you if you were somebody who felt like you could turn a plane around in ten minutes. They didn't let you work there. Um, but they had this fantastic culture, and they did all these things differently. Um, and they also – this was one of the big ones that people are still <laughs> dealing with today. They flew one class of airplane. They flew the Boeing 737. And as a matter of fact, you know, we're having all these problems with the Boeing MAX 8 right now. Um, Herb told me when we were in the interview, he said, he said, we'll never fly anything but the Boeing 737. So if you're a pilot, you have something called a type rating. And the type rating allows you to fly any airplane of that type. So a 737, 200, 300 has the same type rating, which means pilots can swap. Everything so lands the same. Everything looks the same. You put your hand out. It's exactly where it's, it's supposed the, to be. The plane has the same flight characteristics. But they built this Max 8. They put these giant engines in front of the wings. That changes the flight characteristics. And some smart engineer at Boeing says, oh, we can fix that with software. We can write software to take this plane, which is not a 737, and make it seem like a 737 to a pilot. So a pilot with a 737 type rating can fly the plane. And, you know, Herb and I had this great conversation about how how much more efficient Southwest was because all their pilots have the 737 type rating. So one crew is missing. You can swap another crew. Well, United can't do that because United flies 14 different types of planes. They have 14 different type ratings. It's all in their book. Yeah. And in front of you. Oh, yes. Yes. Here's all our planes. And United or the major carriers can't swap crews willy nilly because the equipment, i.e. the plane, is different. Southwest could. And I think it's one of the reasons we're having problems with the Max 8 today is because they were trying to make a 737 out of something that fundamentally wasn't. But here they are. They're in trouble. And they're coming up with all these new ideas. They don't just roll over. That's part of innovation. And yes. you've got to have a lot of innovation. And even today, what's the part of the plane that if you're using the plane again and again really gets trashed? It's those well, overhead, overhead bits. Yes. And <laughs> what is Southwest doing? They're using commercial-grade 3D printers. They just print them out and print them out and print them out, and they stick them back in. Yeah, they're great. You don't buy a new plane because your overhead bins are really, really taking the damage here. You know, so they're still in this high innovation mode. Yeah, I mean, Southwest has, has been a con- 
company that has maintained a lot of its culture of innovation, you know, even from 40 or 50 years ago. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jim McKelvey, a serial entrepreneur. You likely know him best as the co-founder of Square, that little white gadget that plugs into a vendor's smartphone and lets them process your credit card. That's not the only startup he's been involved with or interested in. He's here today with the Innovation Stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. Let's get back to Square. The reason I say this is that you're going along, we know what business you're trying to do, and you're getting attacked. And we've already said they've they've their their Amazon is charging much less. Now they have a separate little gadget? Yeah, they copied our gadget. Actually they made an arguably better version of the thing that I designed, uh, which was the card reader. Um theirs worked better than mine did. well why didn't they win what was what happened how long did this go on tell us so the battle lasted about a year um during that time we were very nervous but we couldn't think of anything we could do differently or that we should do differently so we went through all the things we were doing um looked for any other companies that had beaten amazon that we could copy couldn't find any of them looked at what we were doing, said, well, everything we're doing, we're doing for a reason. And the reason was usually to serve our customers. And so we made the crazy decision to not do anything differently. And that's terrifying because if you're being attacked, like you want to do something. Every fiber of your being says, if you're under attack, you know, do something, make a call, you know, change something. For God's sake, we're under attack. Um, but we didn't do anything differently at Square. And um, about a year later, Amazon did the most amazing thing. They got out of the business. They gave up. And, and they did it with class. I have, to, I have to tip my hat to Amazon because what they did was so cool. They mailed all of their soon-to-be former customers, one of our little white Square readers, and said, We're out of this business. Yeah. Say, Thank you so much. Go to, go to Square. Um, now, and we'll, we don't know why. And I, 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 I don't work for Amazon. I never had direct contact with the people there. Um, and I don't know what happened. But I have a theory. <laughs> I have a theory. And I've spent three years researching it. And I'm pretty sure that Amazon was not able to replicate our innovation stack. And by that, what I mean is we did 14 things differently from normal credit card processors. Everything from sign up to the way we handled customer service to our risk and underwriting and all this stuff was done differently. And it's possible to copy one or two or maybe three things from a competitor, but try to copy 14. And know about them. How could they even know about them? They couldn't. We didn't even know about them. I mean, some of the things, these things happen organically. And um, one of the problems, uh, frankly, with my book is that it, it's, a, it's this linear narrative. So it says, you know, one, two, three, four to up to 14. Well, it didn't happen like that. You know, uh, we started with one and that caused seven and then seven looped back to three and three influenced four and seven. And, you know, it's just this real snarl of interrelationships. But which is the nature of the success, any it success. Is. Yeah. It is. But, but, but uh, Moira, that's a messy type of success. It's a type of success that you as a scientist, you as somebody who's worked at NASA, you kind of get it. Um, I meet some artists who get it. But most people really don't feel comfortable unless there is a known path. Unless they have a map or a guidebook or some expert that they can call or, you know, they can call McKinsey to come in and study the problem. 
unless they have clarity in what's about to happen, people are very hesitant to act. And sometimes you don't get a map, especially if you're going someplace that has not been explored. One thing I think that's important about that is that you were already up and operating. If a startup is too early, it's game over if a big company has a competitive product they can put on the market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If if you're not ready to compete and some big company comes, you'll get wiped out. I mean, that's almost assured. Argues for getting out there, getting a product out there, getting your things in place as fast as possible. Yes. Um, although I do this um, analysis in the book on timing because I learned a tremendous lesson in timing uh, from an artist, actually. I didn't learn from a business person. I learned from probably the world's greatest glass artist, a man named Lino Tagliapietra. And Lino taught me to respect timing because I was taking one of his classes and uh, trying to do this technique. And I, exp I asked Lino how to do it, and he decided uh, to teach me by telling me to do it. He didn't touch the glass at all. He just said, you know, make the piece. And then when I was about to join this piece with another piece, he said, wait, wait. And so you have two hot pieces I, of glass. I have two hot pieces of glass. So picture this. I've got, a, I got a bowl in my left hand, which is basically looks like a basketball. And then in my right hand, I've got a hot glob of glass that's going to be the foot on this bowl. And that's, that's like a tennis ball. And the tennis ball is hot and the basketball is cold. And both of these are on iron pipes. And you've okay. got gloves on, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so you're, 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 you're joining these two pieces together. And I had been having trouble with this move for 15 years. I had been a professional glassblower for over a decade when I finally got this lesson taught to me. And Lino said, put the foot on the bolt. And I went to do this. And then he said, wait, wait. And then he said, now. And when he said, now, I let it fall. And it went on perfectly. And this blew my mind because I had been doing it right for 15 years. My technique was correct. And I tried all sorts of different techniques and all sorts of different things, but I had been doing it at the wrong time. And if you do the right thing at the wrong time, as almost any married person will confirm, it ain't gonna work. And, and, and as soon as I saw that lesson in the glass studio, I, I, I applied it to the rest of my life. And I was like, Oh, my God, how many hundreds, I mean, probably thousands of times in my life have I done the right thing, but too early or too late? And so one of the things that you correctly assess is, look, if you're doing something new, if you're inventing, creating, timing matters and being quick matters. But it's not always the race goes to the first. Sometimes it's better to wait. Sometimes that little pause uh, can let the market open up. Um, yeah, because because you're just too soon. When we twenty something years ago, when we first started talking about technology and science, we don't want to talk about it now. Oh yeah, nobody really. No, we don't really care. Yeah. You know, and it's like. And now you've got nobody the... gets it. It's like, oh yeah, well, give me your your smartphone. <laughs> give me give me your computer. Give me your this, and you live without that for you know a week. See how it's going. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> There are entire seminars dedicated to withdrawal from technology now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how bad it That's is. That's how bad it is. You've been listening to Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square and the author of 
the innovation stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio, as well as other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show on Biotech Nation, what's up with Australia and biotech? The answer is an outpost for clinical trials and plenty of unique medical research. I speak with Chris Nave, the founder and CEO of Brandon Capital. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square and the author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. We have a lot of these these things where market wasn't ready or technology wasn't quite mature enough or it needed a secondary technology to come together. Yes. You know, and it just has to be the right thing. You could have had Square 15 years ago, but that little square would have been, you know, the size of, I don't know, a bread box. What do you call it? Well, we still could have made the square small because that used nothing but 1980s tape deck technology. Oh, well, that's good. It was, a, it was a reed head, one resistor, and uh, like two wires. It was it was dead simple. But the iPhone didn't come along until 2007. The iPhone didn't come along to 2007. But before that, actually, Motorola Razors had had a plug that you could you could actually run a credit card transaction. But of course, you you can't do any of the other stuff. Like, where are you going to sign? Where are you going to um, do all the transactions? Where are you going to keep the receipts? Like, it would not have worked. So we could have been early. We turned out to, frankly, be lucky. Um, and, you know, the other thing about timing, Moira, is if you are right, it always feels early. Like, if you, if you feel like, oh, this is the time, you're probably late. By the time a human feels comfortable... It, the reason we feel comfortable is because we're part of the herd. We are a social animal. We like company. And we feel comfortable when we're wearing wide neckties and everybody else is wearing wide neckties or skinny jeans or whatever the thing is that you feel it's, it's about time to do this. Everybody else feels the same way. 
if you're doing something first and early, it will feel uncomfortable. You will feel like, oh, I'm way too early. The world is just not ready for a tech podcast. Now, um, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and I still will be ready. But anyway, we'll go on. Um, uh, you know, you point out something that I think is really true. Suddenly today, people aren't just in business. They're all entrepreneurs. Who is an entrepreneur in your mind and who is not? So I don't want this to sound judgmental in any way, but it's going to it probably, <laughs> it's going to, it's going to be because when I started this study, what I realized was that I didn't have a word in the English language to describe what I was studying, which were people who had done things that had not been done before. So what do we call somebody who opens a coffee shop? We call them an entrepreneur. What do we call somebody who opens a uh, service station? We call them an entrepreneur. What do we call somebody who opens a tech company? An entrepreneur. That term basically means business person. The term business person and entrepreneur in the English language as used today are interchangeable. Entrepreneur is just harder to spell. But it didn't used to be like that. When the word entrepreneur was first coined and popularized, it, it meant somebody who did something different. It meant a weirdo, a crazy person who did something that was abnormal. And it was this useful word because at the time you wanted to say, okay, well, business people are here and you can lend money to them and you can let your daughter date an, a business person, but don't let her date an entrepreneur. Oh my God. You know, they'll lose all the money. They'll be out in the street. Yeah. yeah I mean, terrible. you know, he's going to be living in your basement, you know, uh, if, if that wedding goes through and, and the, the word entrepreneur was not a compliment. Originally it was this, it was this warning tag. Be careful. He's an entrepreneur. She's an entrepreneur. So in order to write this book, I needed a way of sectioning off all the stuff that was rational and copyable, which I call business, from the stuff that is unknown, which I call entrepreneurship. But um, we didn't have a word for it. So I just resurrected this antiquated definition of the word entrepreneur. And that's the one I use in the book because I only wanted to talk about this thing that nobody was talking about, which is what happens when you can't copy? When you don't get to copy the solution, how is the world different? How are relationships with employees and customers uh, different? How do you feel? You know, Because it's not business. It's just different. If you do business, it's very comfortable. Like when I do business, oh my God, I love it. I know what I'm doing. I can hire experts. I mean, it's fantastic. When I do anything that's entrepreneurial, I'm nervous. My hands sweat. I'm, 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 I, yeah, I wake up and I, I, I get chest pains. It's just stress. Somebody says to you, nobody's ever done it before, or that's not the way it's done. You know, you're on the entrepreneurship train. You, that's the feeling. When people start legitimately criticizing you, uh, you are an entrepreneur or, or getting close. Now, with my, <laughs> yeah, we're getting very close to it. You may be addicted. Just, you know, note, take, make a note here. I have some graduate students, always do, constantly, a good half of them, which is amazing to me. They're thinking up new things. And then they go right to Google and they go, oh, somebody's already done it. How do you tell people Get into that habit of thinking up new ideas and having confidence in moving forward in that. So I'm a big believer in ignorance. 
Um, <laughs> Don't Google I, it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, just a, a little bit of obliviousness to what everybody else is doing. Because first of all, a lot of that stuff that you read online isn't as shiny and sparkly as it appears. It's not really doing what it says. Um, and uh, the, the way I look at it is through a different lens. I always look for the problem. Uh, I say to myself, why do we have a tech tech shortage right now? Like, why are there not engineers and programmers? Um, and, and, and if I look online and I say, well, there's a great school that teaches people how to become programmers. Therefore, we don't have this problem. No, no, no. We still have the problem. This school has a cool website, but we still have the problem. Um, at Square, when we started Square, there were a dozen other companies that had uh, existing iPhone products to collect credit cards. They, they were already on the app store. They were already there. The day we started, we found uh, probably half a dozen of them. We still had the problem. A, an artist couldn't get paid. A, a small business person couldn't sign up. I mean, these, these, these products didn't work very well. They were all garbage. But look, you will, if, if your reason for doing something is I want to do something different then good luck and probably get out of anything except uh, pure science or art because go get a job <laughs> yeah go get go get a good job and have somebody tell you what to do you know um but it's it's this different thing if if you are in search of the solution to a problem and the problem has not been solved before and then who cares if one of your component solutions is something that somebody else invented. As a matter of fact, good. That's one less thing you have to do. You're still probably going to have to do a dozen things differently. You're still probably going to have to string together different things that, uh, that, that have not been done before. And what I would say is ignore whether somebody's done it before. Uh, the question is, is what they did necessary? Do you need that component? And if the component works, buy it. I mean, don't don't invent if you don't know how to invent. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you in a, in a beautiful microphone. You know what? I don't believe the guy who built this microphone invented the microphone. This has been copied and refined, and there you go. Like we didn't have to invent the microphone for this uh, for this recording to work. One area that is really difficult for technical people, scientific people, or just inventors, people who think of new things, but they don't have those kind of skills, is they're like, okay, at some point, they got to go get money. And I was fascinated when you were out talking to VCs, you put a slide up that was 140 reasons this will fail. I got to tell you, I've never heard of this before. Everybody goes, this is so great. They can't fail. Give us more money. 140 reasons. One slide, this will fail. Oh, yes. Everything from the robot uprising to uh, Jack kills Jim. Um, because <laughs> we'll get to Jack. Jack, we'll get to Jack, 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 Jack. Co-founder. Is, Jack, co-founder. Is, Jack is capable of killing me, I'm, I will admit. Um, but look, uh, getting money. Uh, yeah, look, everybody at these VC pitches has smiles on their faces and graphs moving up and to the right. And they talk about uh, nothing but uh, blue sky and sunshine. And that's not life. And that's not how it goes. And there are a hundred things at least that'll kill a startup. And so what Jack and I wanted to do was very honestly uh, explore every single crazy reason why we could fail. 
And we went through every one of them. And we stopped at 140 um, because that was the uh, number of characters that, uh, you know, Jack's, Jack's a guy who likes the number 140. You'll um, soon le- learn why. Okay, so, hold that. Hold so, that thought. Yeah. Keep tagging. So, um, so we explored everything. And... Then we presented it, and that slide had a miraculous effect on the VC meetings. It changed the whole tenor of the meetings because we started off with every difficult thing that Square had to do and that could kill us, and we discussed all those. And it changed this sort of attack and defend uh, mentality that usually pervades VC meetings. Usually the um, uh, the entrepreneurs are attacking, they're pitching, and the uh, VCs are defending. Are dismissing. Yeah, they're sitting there going, oh, I've done that, or no, nah, that's not going to work. You know, and, and you get this sort of, um, th- th- this sort of terrible communication. Um, what we did was we basically pulled our chairs onto their side of the table and said, look, guys, here's, here's a dozen reasons why this is a stupid thing for you to invest in. Like, here's all the stuff that's going to go wrong. And if you're still comfortable with that, then maybe we'll consider letting you invest. Um, and it changed the entire tenor of the thing. And, and, and it, was, it was shockingly effective. We got term sheets from almost every VC. Um, we lost one because I made a bad joke in the pitch. Like it was never make oh, a joke in the pitch. Don't. It could be a bad joke because you don't know. You don't who, know who the audience is. Don't, don't. Yeah, that was it. That was the one. Oh um, man, I blew it. I totally blew it. It was a great VC too. We would have loved to have them, but uh, uh, they didn't have a sense of humor, or maybe I didn't have a sense of humor. One of us didn't have a sense of humor. It didn't work. <laughs> so, so it didn't work out. Well, we've already said Jack. We've already. This is your co-founder. We all said one forty. Your co-founder is Jack Dorsey. Jack you Dorsey. also co-founded Twitter. One hundred and forty characters. Yeah, Jack. He loves the number one forty, um, and it is. Uh, a friend for years. I mean, I met How Jack. How did you meet him? That's the big question. I met him when he was 15 years old. He came to work uh, as a, a summer intern for my then, high school, junior high school. He, he was in high school. He was a junior in high school and he uh, was an intern at my company. I had a little tech company. We were building software and uh, Jack came out. Uh, was brilliant at a, as a 15-year-old. We we called him Jack the Genius. That was his, you know, uh, that was his nickname around the office. And it was, you know, he was a little, you know, he was shy. He was a very quiet guy, um, very thoughtful. But but everything he did was just great. So Jack and I worked together that first summer, and then we worked again later. And then, you know, we kind of kept in touch. Uh, like, I knew Jack when he was a massage therapist. Like, that was his profession. You just outed him in San Francisco. He was a massage therapist. He was a massage therapist. You know, I actually know what it says under Jack's tattoo. And I've never told anyone. Um, I didn't even know he had a tattoo. He has so. a tattoo. He has two. Actually, I don't know how many. <laughs> Looks he has like that. one. You know what? He I don't have, know. He could, I haven't. He could have a tattoo stack. He, he could have, have a tattoo. There stack. could be six tattoos there. You can't tell. It's just one. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, Jack and I were in a Bikram class in the early days of Square, so uh, that's a, that's about as much as my tattoo knowledge goes. But. Um, uh, it's ten years out of date. I'll, I'll disqualify for myself by comments on uh, on Jack's uh, body art. But but the point is this. He was brilliant. He was competent, even as a kid. And we stayed in touch. We were friends. And when uh, they kicked him out the door at Twitter uh, the first time, that happened to coincide with a trip to St. Louis. And we got together and started talking about things we could do. And he said, well, let's start a new company. And that's what became Square. Well, you know, some people are listening to this and say, you know, I know who these entrepreneurs are. I know them in my life. I've met them. And some people are saying... 
I really am one and I don't really want to tell anybody, but I really am one. And those are the people I want to talk to. If someone out there is listening and they say, you know, I really am an entrepreneur. I happen to have a, a job I don't like or I'm, I'm spending 100% of my time in my garage inventing things or whatever it is. What three things would you tell them right now? Knowing that they're going to be working like mad for years to come, what would you tell them right now? The three, say three important things for them to understand about themselves and what they're doing. First, find a problem, not an opportunity. So many would-be entrepreneurs get seduced by opportunity. They think that there's some opportunity to, you know, litter the city with scooters. Okay, well, I don't care about scooters. What I care about is getting around. And if the scooter is a solution to a problem of getting around, then there should be a scooter. But maybe there's a better sol- solution than that. Focus on the problem. And, and by God, find a problem you personally care about because the rewards for entrepreneurship um, are, are pretty thin. Uh, it's, it's a rough life. It's, um, y- y- if you're successful, you'll get a lot of notoriety and money. And I'll tell you, those things don't really motivate you that much. They're, they're, they're very weak motivators. But if you care about a problem, if there's something that's really sticking in your craw, that will provide you energy. And energy is the key. If you care about something, you will hit it with enthusiasm day after day after day. Um, which brings me to my second point, which is you better get familiar with discomfort. Because if you are doing something new, if you're solving a problem that hasn't been solved before, which is what I would say entrepreneurship truly is, then you don't get any of the positive feedback that you're always used to getting from your coworkers or your spouse or, you know, anybody, your bank manager. You're just going to hear a constant stream of negativity. And it's going to Too much time. You're spending too much money. You're not on track. You're, yeah. Absolutely. You're crazy. It can't be done. This has never worked. Nobody can land a rocket like that, Right. Thank you. Elon should be here to tell us. That's about right. That. You, Elon, you're right. not going to yeah. stick the landing. You're not going to stick the landing. See, look at that rocket. It fell over. I told you. I mean, come on. You're going to have to put your energy up against this constant stream of negativity. And there are ways to prepare for that. Like if you're if you're prepared for it. And this is one of the reasons I wrote the book is I want people to know at least that they're not alone, that others have walked these paths and that it's it's wonderful when it works. Um, the final thing is. Um, get into the habit of copying the best solutions, but inventing if the solution doesn't exist. And that's the pattern that I see successful entrepreneurs get into. It's, oh, we got a new problem. Has anyone solved this problem? Great. Do that. Oh, wait, nobody's done this. We need to figure out something new. And you get into this problem solution problem cycle really fast and, and then just run that until you have a solution to your problem. The, the, the challenge with that, of course, is that if you're solving an, a previously unsolved problem, you don't know how long it's going to take. At Square, it took us 18 months. It took us 18 months, and we had no idea it was going to work. It took us 18 months, and at, at, at 18 months, it was like, oh, Finally, we've got our product out the door. And then we still didn't know if the world was going to like it, but at least we had the product out the door. It can take you years to get something that is finally ready. Um, And you have to maintain energy that whole time. Jim, this has been absolutely terrific. I hope you come back and see us again. This is super fun. 
I, I must call you Dr. Gunn because I was raised in academia. But Dr. <laughs> Moira, thank you so much. This was great. My guest today is Square co-founder Jim McKelvey. His book is The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. It's published by Portfolio Penguin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Today on Biotech Nation, we've often talked about the long and intensive requirement of testing drugs on humans. In fact, this need drives American companies to find places to conduct studies outside of the United States. I only recently learned that one popular place is Australia. Chris Nave is the CEO and founder of Brandon Capital. That's true. That's true. And I, look, I, I think access to patients is certainly one driver that's that's causing companies to come out to Australia. It's been happening for about five years, and it actually continues to increase. So, so the the volume of companies piping through to Australia continues to increase. I, I think access to patients is one of them, but there's some other drivers as well. So. Um, our regulatory scheme um, and our, uh, our Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is our, T- our FDA, um, is harmonised with the US FDA. So data that's generated in Australia uh, is well accepted by the, by the regulator here in the US. Um, but also to get approval to go into patients in Australia takes about half the time. So we have... Um, what? It takes about half the time to get approval to go into your first inhuman study. So you do your, your preclinic, do your in animals, you get ready... And you can get to the study much faster. Yeah, and we know this because we, we, we run studies both in, the, in Australia and the US and we know it takes about half the time from the, from the point of time that you submit your papers till you get approval to dose your first patient. It's about half the time in Australia. And, 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 it, and what are those in terms of months? Uh, so, look, in the US, it's typically six to nine months from the time that you, you put in your regulatory filing to, to progress the trial. In Australia, it can be as short as three months. Um, and part of that is that, again, there's increasing harmonisation across our hospital networks. So one submission through the Ethics and Regulatory Committee can give you approval across a wide network of hospitals. Um, and those ethics committees meet frequently. And so your approval process can be really quite rapid. So that's 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 one of the drivers, but I think there are there are a number of factors that is that are causing the the biotechs to come to Australia. Another one is our, our dollars um, uh, got a favourable exchange rate with the US, so so you immediately get a thirty percent discount um, in the cost of doing your study. So that that certainly means something. Although you wouldn't come to Australia if the, if the data was inferior. Um, we also. Clinical care in Australia is the same as it is in the US. So our, our patients have access to the best therapies, the best drugs and the latest treatment regimes as they do in America. So, so if you are testing a drug in Australia, you know that, that the patients are getting access to other medication in the same way they would in the US. And so that's really important. So there's next to cherry on top of the cake. So our government has a research and development tax incentive whereby if you're a company coming to, coming to Australia or an Australian company uh, funding research or development in Australia, for every dollar you spend, the Australian government gives you another 43 cents or 43.5 cents. So if you come to Australia and you spend a million dollars on clinical development, the government will give you $435,000 in addition to that million dollars. And so that's, a, that's actually a cash dividend and it means effectively it lowers the cost of doing your, doing your work in Australia. And so, so that's a real driver um, as well, I think, for companies coming to Australia. So it, it, to get that straight, if you, you bring your million dollars, they don't give you $435,000 back. They'll give you $435,000 on top of that to invest in your trials. Correct. You have to spend the money to get the dividend. 
but correct. So if you spend a million, the government will then write you a cheque for 435000 on top of that million you've already spent. You can do anything with the four hundred and thirty. Correct. Correct. So it's it's to try. If and, only I had a million dollars. Well, it's to try and encourage increased um, research and development efforts in Australia, and it's been great for our industry. So obviously, initially it was a, it was developed to try and stimulate the Australian innovation ecosystem, and particularly the biotech ecosystem. Uh, and as more and more co- co- companies flooded from overseas to take advantage of it. At first, the government were unsure whether this was a good idea to be to be giving a rebate to, to um, international companies, but I think they recognise now that actually it's created this huge wave of activity that's actually increased the resources available to the Australian ecosystem, and so it's been a win-win. Another thing that I think is uh, unknown uh, in much of the world is the highly intensive education of the population in Australia. You, per capita, you have many more masters, PhDs in the life sciences, certainly, and across the board in, in the science, technology, and engineering areas than most populations. You can go there and you have almost no end, it seems, of really qualified people. Maura, you're right. Australians are much smarter than other countries. No, they're not. <laughs> no, we, look, you we, barely speak English. <laughs> uh, look, we are we are fortunate in that we have a fantastic university system. And in fact, we'll, we're just talking about this outside um, this interview. In that, our system enables everyone to have access to tertiary education. Um, the the government, whilst all students have to pay for their education, the government actually lends students the money to pay for their education and then you only pay it off once you start working in the future and earn over $50,000 a year. So so it means you don't have to have money to be able to get the best education in Australia and there's a really managed way of then paying the government back throughout your career. I seldom interview venture capitalists, and it wasn't until today that I realized I'd actually interviewed people from one of the companies you founded. Very popular interview. Let's retell that story. Oh, it's a great story. I think you must be referring, I think, to QSERA, which is a, a technology that we funded out of the University of Queensland and the, and the Diamantina Institute in, in Queensland, which is in northern Australia. And, and the, the way this investment came about was actually a clinical pathologist was riding his bike to work in the morning and was going into the hospital and on, on his way to work um, he was actually hoping that uh, the thousands of tubes that he'd set up on his automated um, uh, reader hadn't, hadn't been blocked by an incomplete clotted blood sample. And what I mean by that is when a, when a doctor or a nurse takes someone's blood, um, they then spin that blood and use chemicals to try and separate the serum, which is the clear part of the blood. And it's that serum that they run the tests on to look at um, different diagnoses. But if the patients have been on some form of blood thinning agents like warp, warfarin or heparin, which increasingly the population is as the population ages, often you get incomplete clotting. And so then you get contamination of that serum with other, as other parts of the blood. And then that contaminates the machine. And if you have an incomplete clotted blood sample, it can actually contaminate the machine, meaning that all the other samples that ran through that night have to be repeated. So he was thinking about that and, and riding, riding to work on his bike and suddenly a, a snake came in front of him and actually got tangled up in the spokes of his bike. And so he's rolling along with this snake flipping around in his, in his, in his bike wheel and, and obviously huge fright, uh, managed to sort of get the snake out of the way, wasn't bitten, hopped back on his bike 
And then as a doctor and a clinical pathologist started thinking about, well, if that snake had bitten me, what would, what would have happened? And in Australia, the snake venom sort of head in two directions. Some of them thin your blood um, and, and cause bleed out. Um, and other snakes um, have uh, agents that rapidly clot your blood and, and kill, kill their prey by clotting the blood. And so he sort of went, went through this in his mind and then got to work and, and through, the, through the normal course of his days just started thinking about, well, wow, what about if we identified those snakes that have rapid, that rapid clotting proteins and, and have a look at what it is within their venom that's causing that? And that's how this opportunity came about. And so he started working with some researchers and they, they went and milked a bunch of snakes and got their venom. And they went to the desert taipan, which is one of the most poisonous snakes in the world that rapidly clots blood. And, and through a range of studies, they identified actually that there's one protein in particular that's, that's solely responsible for that clotting. Um, with our investment, we're able to isolate that protein um, and show that actually in very, very small amounts, it clots blood extremely quickly and gives you beautiful, clear serum. Uh, and more importantly, when you um, expose it to blood that's got heparin or warfarin or other blood thinning agents, it's just as efficacious. So the clotting action isn't blocked by those other drugs, which is really important in the clinic. You know, if a patient rocks up with chest pain, the first thing the doctor wants to do is a troponin test, a blood test. But if they're on uh, warfarin or heparin, which they probably are because they're probably at risk at heart failure, you can't get complete serum. And so whilst they want to run that test quickly, at the moment they can be stuck, not able to clot the blood. Um, so we're pretty excited. So that, that, that investment's gone ahead. We're now making the protein recombinantly and, and it's actually being tested in the laboratories of some of the largest blood tube manufacturers in the world. Uh, and we think there's, every, there's a very good chance that um, in the near term it will, it will pass on to one of those manufacturers and it will become a standard part of their blood tubes. Well, the good news is that it's a successful company and it's going forward. The bad news is that you've, you've ruined tourism for the bike industry. <laughs> <laughs> Who is going to take a bike? tour in australia now yeah i mean it's it's look you know if i it's, would I, I think i might leave the bike and just run <laughs> if it's not if it's in australia if it's not the snakes and the spiders that are all poisonous and deadly it's the crocodiles so you know, one way or another they're going to get you <laughs> <laughs> you guys are very dangerous <laughs> chris thank you so much i hope you come back and see us again thanks maura Chris Nave is the CEO and founder of Brandon Capital. More information is available at brandoncapital.com.au. That's right, .com, then .au. The AU is for Australia. That's brandoncapital.com.au. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.